When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. This is Daniel Paris, host of the New Books in Finance, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm delighted to have as my guest today, author Richard Vague, a uh, author and uh, investor, currently the managing partner of Gabriel Investments uh, in Philadelphia. His uh, new book, A Brief History of Doom, 200 Years of Financial Crisis, uh, just came out, and it's a very interesting read. Richard, thank you so much for joining, uh, joining me today. Thank you for having me. So you are uh, in an interesting spot and one I'm very sympathetic to, both a practitioner investor and clearly someone with a historical bent. And you you have uh, brought into clear light a focus on, on debt uh, and the role that it has played in prior crises. And obviously, there's an implication in regard to, to the current situation. But do you want to kind of provide a, a background as to why you consider... Um, kind of a, a, the key factor in looking at various crises through the past 200 years of, of, of debt. Yes. Uh, you know, we all know that runaway mortgage lending led to the 08 crisis. And I had been a student of the Great Depression and, uh, you know, a couple other crises like Japan's crisis for years. And once it became so clear that private debt was the culprit in 08, I wondered whether uh, if we look back at the Great Depression, we would find the same thing. So with considerable effort, I pulled together banking information on the 1920s. And sure enough, there's this runaway lending period from 1923 to 1928. You know, it's heavily real estate oriented. Um, and, you know, it just underscored what we learned about 08. So I also wondered whether Japan's crisis, which really became manifest in 1990 and 91 was also debt-based. So I pulled that information together and did the same analysis. And sure enough, it's rampant lending in that period. So we have just, in this book, extended that investigation. We've looked at the top six countries in the world over the last 200 years, which collectively account for 50% of world GDP. And we've examined uh, to varying degrees of depth 43 different crises. 
you know, we look very hard at six or seven of those and uh, a little less deeply at the rest, but uh, every single one is uh, a result of very rapid run-up in debt with compromised credit standards. In other words, bad loans being made in high quantities in the three to five years before the crisis. And, you know, it's funny, history repeats, it doesn't repeat itself, but it, you know, kind of rhymes. Are there various themes, uh, jokes about that? But w one of the things that you come away with, or I come away with from, from reading the book is the financial memory of market participants uh, and lenders in particular is, is awfully short because it does appear to be, if not exactly the same, very, very similar mistakes are over, uh, made over and over again. In the spirit, almost again, you you point out there are uh, major crises and minor crises, and you spend more time on the major ones. But if you look at the minor ones as well, it's it's roughly every ten years, plus or minus, when there's uh, a, a, at least a bubble somewhere in the economy that bursts. It it's really striking how little we've learned. Is that is that one uh, interpretation? Clearly, there hasn't been as much investigation of this subject as it warrants, and you know. Uh, Frankly, you know, we'll go into a lot of these crises, and most of the research and work is done on the, at the moment of crises and in the years afterwards. And for a lot of these crises, very little work, if any, is done in the five years leading up to the crisis. And to us, that's the most important thing to study. And, you know, sure enough, we see these rampant uh, increases in lending. That's you know, railroads in the 1800s. It's you know, more housing and commercial real estate in the 1920s. It's commercial real estate in Japan in the 19, late 1980s. You know, we see that again and again and again. And once you start fixating on this period, what one of the things you notice is that in the early phase of a lending boom, things really get wonderful. You know, you're making more housing loans and you see that housing prices go up. And you don't think it's because we're doing a lot more lending that the pricing is going up. You just think you're a really smart lender. And lots more people get jobs, prices, you know, housing asset prices go up. Everybody's getting rich. Everybody's paying more taxes. The government uh, uh, debt picture starts to improve. Ever, it's a wonderful time. And I think that's one of the key things that makes it so easy for folks to feel like this time is different to use the, the well-worn phrase. Is is the, uh, is it f uh, correct though, and let me, I mean, I'm just pointing it out that uh, a lot of the lending that you refer to, is it is it uh, debt, just real estate debt? Uh, because in, in various forms, one or another, is it private sector lending? Is it real estate debt? Is it unsecured? Is it borrowing on margin? I, I you, you clearly lean in the direction of, of, of real estate lending. That seems to be most of the Crisis. Is that because, frankly, that's the pool where there's the greatest slack and opportunity to lend money? Or is it something about real estate lending that in each of these crises tends to... Uh, think, and again, it suggests that the railroads were in the 19th century almost a derivative of real estate lending. But is it is it real estate lending or just debt per se that, that seems to get out of control? Well, you need to look at the composition of private debt. Right now in the United States, as an example, we have about $30, $31 trillion worth of private sector debt. We have about $20, 21000000000000 trillion worth of government debt. So private debt, to begin with, is the much bigger factor. 
But if you, you look within private debt, real estate lending is almost half of okay. it. Okay, that's that makes you sense. Know, mortgage lending yeah. is about you know ten trillion. Commercial real is about four trillion. So you know if if you have a problem in real estate, it's going to be a big problem. Energy sector lending is only about a trillion. So in, in 2016, we actually had a major uh, energy lending problem. You know, and we, I don't know what the exact number was, but you know, let's just say 10% of those loans went bad. Well, it's only a trillion. That's only a hundred billion dollar problem in a sector that has two trillion in capital. If you have a 10% problem in real estate. That's a trillion four of that yeah. in an industry that only has two trillion in capital. So it's it's just the relative size of the sector. Yeah, and I suppose if you you know what matters at the time. So in the in the 1920s, the the leading edge of this kind of the spear was the stock market, um, the SNL crisis in the in the 80s, and that's real estate, uh, Japan's real estate, and general lending. I'm just looking through your kind of table of contents and your, your, uh, the railroads obviously in the 19th century. So it's wherever the, wherever the economy is leading. Uh, but if you have roughly, as you point out, half of the overall private debt in real estate, it's going to lean in the direction of real estate, roughly speaking, half the, at least half the time as it were. Uh, but each of the crises that we've had has had a slightly different lean, you know, the, uh, the derivative crisis and the mortgage crisis specific to the SNL crisis from two decades earlier. Um, you know, they, they're both real estate related, but different mechanisms, different transmission mechanisms. Yeah. I mean, you know, they each have their own flavor to them, you know, and then in the 1930s, I mean, the 1830s, excuse me, a lot of it is canal debt because the big, you know, the big business of that day is canals and it's the real estate development in and around canals. You know, by the time you get to the 1850s, railroads, the 1857 crisis, it's railroads and uh, you know, and so forth. So they each have a little bit of a different flavor to them, but by and large, re, you know, real estate plays a huge uh, uh, role in every single one of them that we've observed. So now, now, I, I don't think anyone would dispute that. One of the issues that, at least in my day job as an investor, comes up and kind of structurally and academically is looking at single factor explanations, and. Um, it's very helpful for clarity to look at single factor explanations, but you know, uh, 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 no one gets tenured at the University of Chicago by looking at single factor explanations. Uh, you know, the more complexity that you can layer into it, the and the more obfuscation, the 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 greater your academic success. This leans in the direction of a single factor explanation in in a world that is oriented towards multi factor explanations. That, as you were writing this and thinking this through. You know, were there, did you stub your toe against the Fed? Did you stub your toe against uh, regulatory issues? Did you stub your toe against individual personalities, the the cooks of this world or JP Morgans of this world, Vanderbilts of this world, who uh, may have had as much of a factor or an influence on the, the development of a crisis as the actual debt? Uh, you know, and, and how did you get comfortable with a single factor explanation? Well, we hoped all along, you know, we've been working on this pretty hard since about 2011. And we have always hoped and we still hope that there are additional factors that you can bring into bear uh, because, you know, we want as much predictive power as possible. Uh, and we, we failed. <laughs> 
And we've looked really hard at kind of, you know, we have a database of 47 countries that is reasonably comprehensive going back at least to 1960 and generally to World War II. For some countries, we've got data all the way back to the early 1800s. And we, we can look at each of these things. And we've always hoped, but something like government debt, for example, which a lot, a lot of folks attribute these crises to, is almost a contrafactor. Uh, you know, government debt in Spain, leading up to their own 809 crisis, actually improves as a percent of GDP by 13%. So that's a dead end. So we go through these things very rigorously with a lot of data, and we don't find it. You know, there's one factor that actually helps mitigate the accumulation of private debt, and that's when a country has a large net export, positive net export position. I'm not talking about 1% or 2% to GDP. I'm talking about 10% to GDP. And, you know, that that can really create an earnings stream that helps pay down is that, that that the description of uh, of China currently? You know that was, high 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 debt, but high high uh, exports. That's one of the things that's a mitigating factor. You know, we don't think it's, you know, uh, it, we don't think it's going to save the day. In China, it's certainly going to soften soften the blow. And by the way, their net export position is significantly diminished from where it was in the period of say two thousand and three to two thousand and seven. So, you know, where it reached almost 10% uh, to GDP. But but it is the other thing that, that we know. You know, there's there's other things that come into play because I would argue that, you know, economics is a behavioral science and not a physical science. So there's not any mathematical formula that carries the day because the way the government behaves once the trouble begins to manifest itself has great bearing, great bearing on how things play out. Clearly, in the 1930s, the government's a hard ass, and you know, you know, let the banks fail. Let's purge the rottenness out of the system. Well, you can see what that brought. Uh, you know, the United States uh, in 2007, early 2008, is a as kind of a let institutions fail mindset, and that's one of the things that brings Lehman to it to its knees. And we saw what that brought. China has the opposite point of view. In, in 99, they have you know, a, a terrible problem in their banks. They have been you know, profligate lending to spare, and yet they, because they own and control everything, very deftly use what amounts to accounting fiction to to let the banks uh, get through their problems. So, you know, there are there are other issues to understand and to complicate uh, to contemplate here. So it's not entirely a one fixed factor. Uh, issue, but it's it's the one factor is the biggest. I, I, China is an example. Japan's another example where culture is an enormous factor uh, for uh, the Japanese to acknowledge a bank failure was, uh, as you describe in your book, is <laughs> a huge deal uh, and took a long time. And uh, again, different countries, I suppose, will bring a different sentiment uh, to 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 that, uh, so that everyone experiences uh, kind of a debt debt crisis um, um, individually. Well, one, is it culture? I, I wonder if the culture of the United States that leads to the cyclicality here and the repetition of this is growth. That is this culture of growth. I, I happen to work in the public equity markets and um, there's just is no tolerance 
for a steady cash stream, it needs to be a growing cash stream. It need, companies need to grow. And they need to grow faster than GDP. They need to grow faster than their peers. Uh, if they don't, they'll be bought out with borrowed money themselves. Uh, and this relentless focus on growth in the, in the finance sector is going to lead to cyclical lending above and beyond what every other pressure would be to lend to cyclical lending. That is, have you encountered country-specific explanations as to why the cycle of excess lending occurs in each, each, each country? Or is it just, it just happens? You know, I think you've hit the nail on the head, which is to say, this is a, a function of human nature. You know, this is the way to win. If you're a, a football coach is to win the Super Bowl. You know, the way to win, if you're the CEO of a computer company is to sell more computers, or sell more phones or what have you. The way to win, if you're a banker, is to make more loans. That's what gets you a better stock price. A bigger bonus, a promotion, and therefore it is absolutely intrinsic uh, and endemic to the system. And it, you know, it it, it crosses borders. I, I, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to argue that it's a lot greater here versus there versus there. It's it's the way you accumulate power and wealth. So it's it's there, and you know, the it it just turns out that if it happens in the banking business. You create too much capacity. Too much real estate lending means you have way too many empty office buildings or way too many unsold homes or way too many railroads for the, in the 1800s for the number of passengers that you actually have. And once you have significant overcapacity, it means the economy has to slow down. You can't build a lot more until years pass by and demand catches up with supply. And it also means a bunch of banks have a bunch of bad loans and fail or have to be rescued. So, you know, that part of the story is a constant. Are, are there, uh, you know, there, there have been busts that are outside. If you think about the internet bubble, it doesn't really, it, it doesn't really fit in your story, um, which is not that that's a problem, but it, it, it is a bust that is independent. If I think of major contractions in the U.S. economy over the past century, they all more or less fit within your pattern. The, the internet bubble doesn't, other than you know, overgrowth or uh, overexpansion of operations within a narrow sector of the economy and everyone getting crazed, but it really isn't a broad-based economic lending lending cycle exercise, is it? So this is where you get into the definition of what a financial crisis is. And to me, a financial crisis is, is a very simple thing. It's when a lot of banks and other lending institutions fail or, or come, you know, have to be rescued. And so what we studied with that type of crisis there are also occasionally stock market crises that are that happen where bubbles burst but the financial the lending community is not hurt and it you know so the internet crisis deserves its own study you know you didn't have millions of consumers hurt as a result mm -hmm. of that you had stock mm -hmm. speculators hurt and by the way even that one if you study it there's a there's a very tight correlation between margin debt and uh, the stock market boom and, and sure sure price. which is a form of lending sure yeah um, well let's let's go back and at least cover a couple of these and then you know kind of uh, mention you you do not really choose to have a uh, chronological order uh, the the organization 
uh, is it goes from crisis to crisis, but it's not organized chronologically. And and that the the point of that is to well the juiciest crisis of all is the Great Depression. So that's chapter one, and it's the one uh, about which you know the most has been written, and there's the most disagreement, and in my opinion, there's the most misunderstanding. So I just it was simply irresistible to me uh, to to start there. And once we, we got there, we, we, we were semi-chronological. You know, we went from there to the 1980s crisis, which is the next big crisis and really the third largest crisis of, uh, in America in the last century. And, and, uh, and that is the SNL and, and various banking, true bank and lending and real estate uh, across the country, Texas in particular. Yeah. And leverage buyouts and so forth. Bonds. It, was, it was the 80s were a mess. It's just that the chickens came home to roost in the George Bush administration rather than the Ronald Reagan administration, even though all the the problems, the problems really emanated from behavior during the Reagan administration. Um, so um, that's the second one we tackle. It's also the one where I came of age as a banker. Uh, so it's a sentimental favorite. <clears throat> you know, then we go to Japan, which really happens more or less at the tail end of America's 80s problem. <clears throat> and, you know, it's the other huge crisis. So we deal with really the three biggest crises prior to our own common experience in the 08 crisis. Then we take a pause and we go back to the <clears throat> to the uh, 19th century, really asking the question, is this a new phenomenon or is, does it have precedent in prior periods? And, <clears throat> we conclude that it's just endemic to the industrial age. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you cover uh, the, uh, as you say, the emergence of kind of modern banking and specifically the 19th century is a combination of railroad crises, also agricultural crises, commodity prices uh, are uh, far more significant in the economy and for real estate lending at that time than they are now. Uh, and, it, it, uh, and it's also incredibly periodic. That uh, in the 19th century, pretty much every 10 years, plus or minus, you have this cycle. There is no regulator uh, there. It's a much more wild and woolly period that uh, lends itself to that type of cyclical analysis. I mean, you know, we start, you know, 200 years ago at the Second Bank of the United States, <clears throat> which is just down the street from where I live. So it's also another one that I've grown very fond of. And you know, they, they opened for business in early 2007, or uh, 1817, excuse me, and almost immediately have made so many bad loans, reckless loans, you know, all across the country. I believe the second bank ends up with as many as 25 branches. So, you know, you're over lending in the new cities like Cincinnati and down in the south in Baltimore and Charleston and other places, and it, it, it gets... You know, loans go from, at a point where no other bank has more than like a million dollars in lending, uh, the second bank gets up to like $60 million in lending. So you can see how much it dwarfs the other banks in the landscape. But, you know, it goes from $10 million in loans to 50, I think, $50 million loans in one year. So clearly, you know, it's almost as if they don't know how to lend. There's also a lot of fraud in that. And, uh, it brings to the crisis of 1819, which is one of the reasons Andrew Jackson comes to hate them so much. Now, do I mean, usually Andrew Jackson gets a, uh, a bad rap for not uh, renewing their uh, 
their charter, you seem to, uh, you you know, ha- do you have a strong opinion in regard to that? Or it, I, I think he didn't renew it for many reasons. This may have been one of them. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. So what's really going on, and, you know, Jackson has little to do with this, but in 1831, you have about 2 million acres worth of federal land sales. By the time you get to 1836, you have 20 million, 10 times as much land sales. Uh, this is essentially all debt financed, and any number of western and southern cities see their land prices go from you know, $10 an acre or $50 an acre to $1,000 an acre or $5,000 an acre. Folks feel like they're getting rich, but it's all built on this shaky foundation of debt. And so you have a lot of land sold and a lot of real estate structures built in the mid-1830s uh, that will, won't get sold, won't get used for decades. I mean, it's just uh, extreme overbuilding. Somebody had, you know, to me it brings up the interesting question, which is once a boom is well underway, how do you manage it so that you have a soft landing? You've already right. pointed out that there's cultures like Japan that kind of pretended like it wasn't happening and kind of let the banks uh, deal with it over 10 or 15 years. Well, Andrew Jackson uh, didn't deal with that that way. He, he basically said there's massive overspeculation. We're not going to let people buy federal land with debt anymore. That was the, the species of 1836-37. And sure enough, it all comes crashing down. Well, so he fixed the problem quickly, but uh, he he's kind of gotten a bad, bad rap in the in the financial media. Uh, maybe it's the, because the financial media itself likes this or is part and part of this culture. Let's let's move to the the current uh, period, which is uh, you know, as you point out, a lot of people are asking, well, how, how can you tell if you're in a crisis or not? Uh, if you're in the midst of it, you know, are we in one now? I I, I want to before we get to the to the kind of juicy current stuff in your view in the future. I want to um, ask one question that for me is very important, which is that presentist bias that we all have where we can't see a crisis, particularly if we're in the middle of it. I, I circle back and back uh, back uh, to the main point that interest rates in this country, you don't spend a lot of time on them, but you know they, they seem to be a, a huge driver of the current attitude towards debt, that interest rates in this country had been coming down for 35 years. And that interest rates coming down for that long a period of time, the two generations of uh, market participants, creates a culture of debt that is uh, a one-way culture of debt, which is more is always better. And uh, the last two years, interest rates, we'll see whether they bottomed or not, but they stopped going down dramatically uh, about two years ago, and two, three years ago, and have been moving sideways ever since. But to me, it seems, and I, I have been only in the industry for the last 20 years, so you, correct me if I'm wrong. Only 20 years. Yeah. So the that uh, that uh, the attitude towards debt uh, has changed and that uh, at least right now, people are very concerned about being over. The publicly traded banks have very lean loan books. The Non-bank institutions do not, but the bank institutions have very lean loan books. The corporations I uh, track have feasted at the table of debt for decades, but for the last two years, they're trying to 
step back as much as they can and uh, and and slim down. And there seems to be a change. The question is whether is that change towards debt? Is it too little, too late? And where do you see us currently in terms of your your cycle of borrowing, overborrowing, and contraction? Well, I think there's a relatively straightforward way to examine whether there's too much debt in a country or in a sector. And that's simply by dividing that debt into GDP and looking at that trend over five or 10 years. We, we, we frankly look at it back as many decades as we can, but if you look at aggregate U.S. private debt to GDP uh, since 0809, it's been relatively flat, and I personally don't think there's reason for a lot of alarm within the United States right now. Now, I quickly add that there are certain sectors within that that there is a reason for concern. So if you did that uh, analysis just on highly leveraged transactions, which I believe are about a trillion and a half. So again, it's a small piece of a $30 trillion pile. But highly leveraged transactions to me are an area of great concern, but it's a small sector. Student lending has been coming up as a percent of GDP. It's an area of concern. I actually think agricultural lending, doing that same analysis, which we've just done in the last few days, uh, you know, had it, uh, agricultural lending is once again reappro- is reapproaching the levels of 1982 when the ag industry got into so much trouble. So we think we're going to have little areas of problems, but it's not going to rise to the level of a national systemic uh, problem. If we look at Asia, the story's very different. You do that same analysis in China or Australia or South Korea, any number of other countries, there's very valid reasons to be very concerned. That is debt, private sector debt as a percentage of GDP is at alarming That's levels right. based on past past history. It's curious, how do you do the data in uh, in Australia when they have had three decades of no recession? Well, I view, I think it's very important to understand whether a country is kind of a hegemon in its area or whether it's a satellite of some hegemon. And, you know, China is what makes China's GDP. Yeah, yeah. I mean, China, as long as China keeps, China's economy is, you know, 10 or 12 trillion, depending on who you listen to, uh, Australia is about a trillion. So Australia's trends are really going to be a function of what happens in China. And that's true for most of the economies in that region. That's, frankly, that's true of South Korea and Malaysia and in Indonesia and Vietnam and, you know, any other. So, you know, if, if China, if China itself has a, an even more material slowdown or reversal, I think all of those folks are going to feel it in a very significant way. And frankly, you're seeing it a little bit in Australia right now. They've had a decline in real estate prices. You're seeing it in uh, South Korea where they've had the first uh, dip in GDP in quite some time. So I'm not sure that, you know, I would, likely think that over the next two or three years, we're going to see that reversal uh, in, in, uh, in Asia. But that, that being said, um, given your, your method, and despite the uh, title of your book, A Brief History of Doom, you, you actually don't, you don't see us at a, at least in the U.S., at an extreme point currently. We, we are not. We are not. We have small pockets of issues, but uh, 
generally speaking, we're not going to face, we're not facing a situation like we did in 07. And then how, how is this end up being reflected in, uh, you are kind of a venture and early stage uh, business supporter. Uh, how do these, are, are you looking at debt in the, uh, and I, I believe that your investments tend to focus in the, the Delaware Valley area. Is that correct? Yeah, we're early stage investors in our company. You know, could get debt. It would get debt if they could, but they're too small and they can't. So it's kind of a non-issue. Okay, so you're you're and your companies, as you say, are so small that uh, these macroeconomic issues are less relevant than their own particular business. That's right. Uh, That's right. So this is this is not directly related to your day job, uh, related but not directly. So it, it, this is simply a uh, tracking the rise and fall in the cyclicality of debt and economic activity. It's just an uh, an intellectual interest of yours. This has been a labor of love for me and for our group. Okay, well, that's that's. Uh, I mean, one uh, of the things one of the things we've done that we're very excited about is that we have gone out and reconstructed uh, data, especially private lending data, in each of these crises for a period ten years prior to the crisis itself, and for ten years after. And we have, in many cases, had to go to dusty corners of libraries and get. Uh, railroad manuals from the 1800s, etc. Uh, you know, we've gone to our dusty archives for some of the German data for 1870 and so forth and so on. And we've put all this out on Excel spreadsheets at our website. And one of the things we're excited about is researchers, academic researchers in this area are starting to use the data we put out there to kind of sharpen and improve the, the research that's being done in this area. Please, please mention the the website. Uh, feel free. It's, ba- it's very complicated. Bankingcrisis.org. <laughs> <laughs> uh, any other thing that you would like to kind of summarize or make sure the uh, soon-to-be readers of a brief history of doom, 200 years of financial crises, uh, anything you want to make sure those future readers know uh, before we wrap up? Well, we hope we've written this in a short in lively way, so we think it's something folks are going to enjoy. Uh, as far as doom goes, uh, making doom enjoyable and debt. Laura, it, it, you have to acknowledge that the people who find uh, debt crises and the history of debt crises enjoyable are a select group of the population, uh, present company included. But it is a select group of the population. It's a select group of the population, <laughs> and we love them all. <laughs> My guest has been Richard Vague, the author of the just published from the University of Pennsylvania Press, A Brief History of Doom, 200 Years of Financial Crisis. Highly recommend taking a look at it, whether you enjoy debt or doom or not. It simply is, uh, if you are watching uh, the economy or the markets or economic development, is something that you need to need to absolutely be aware of. And it is for a data-filled book. It's actually very uh, easy to read. The points are, are, are well made and clear. Richard, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for your interest.